0: One of the biggest problems, and it's a kind of a controversial opinion in my mind, and it's also a bias. I don't think so where you get a lot of the training and cultivation is through the relationships with the insurance carriers, Um, because that's where you're getting. There's basically two kinds of firms in this. There's the large firms who have the captive groups that do privacy work and some breach work, but they don't work with the middle market, right? The middle market is where... The insurance world thrives um, because if you think about it, the large scale companies they've got insurance but their retentions
1: their deductibles are just silly so they're making their own decisions but there's not a lot of those breaches. Do you want to hear about the latest developments in the cyber market and learn best practices and thought leadership from cyber insurance and security experts? We talk all things cyber insurance industry, international growth, cyber claims and more. Welcome to the Cyber Insurance Leaders Podcast. I'm your host Anthony Hess. Stay tuned. Spencer Pollack, thanks, thanks a lot for coming. Um, hope you're, hope you're having a great day.
0: Thanks for having me, Anthony.
1: Um, well, cool. Well, uh, let's let's jump right into it. Um, you know, for our audience members that don't already know you, um, why why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, so my name is Spencer Pollock. I'm a data protection, privacy, and cybersecurity attorney with McDonald Hopkins. Uh, I'm out of the Baltimore office. Um, I would say, you know, this is our bread and butter. This is my bread and butter in terms of privacy. A lot of the front end compliance work, helping with the administrative safeguards, meaning privacy development, privacy policies, incident response planning, vendor due diligence, contractual obligations. Um, Obviously, we're heavy into the breach side as well. The breach coach side, incident response, where we come in and we really help quarterback an incident and bring in great vendors like yourself, Anthony and Sarah's um and help a client to stay compliance with all the fun data protection and privacy laws that are impacting them
1: okay cool well thanks thanks for that intro um you know sometimes ask about geographies um but i assume you're you're kind of all across the u.s are you mostly focused on u.s work
0: yeah all u.s work
1: yeah okay um is there any particular size of clients or industry specialization No,
0: I think that's one of the best parts about my job in cyber and privacy is like we don't really focus in on any specific industry or any specific client size just because, as you know, um, cyber and privacy is very much agnostic towards that. So Mm -hmm. we are too. Right. And we're very diverse in our client base across the SME world and also large kind of cap clients um, in every industry from finance DOD contracting, construction, education, healthcare. I mean, you name it, we
1: do it. Okay. So so pretty broad, is there? Um, anything that you'd consider a particular strength of of your team, yourself or your company when it comes to cyber?
0: I think one of the biggest strengths of our team is our it's a combination between depth and specialty. Um, You know, we're not one of the larger law firms. We're not one of the larger groups out there. But our group has a lot of depth in terms of our bench and our uh, specialties within it. Like we have people who really like doing the DOD work, who really like doing the healthcare and OCR work, who really like doing the finance work or education. Um, And so we differentiate ourselves on that, but also kind of our ability to be more of a, a personal touch and to be able to connect. So I think that is really our biggest strengths is our personality and personal touch you bring and also kind of the industry focus per individual, but also being able to lean on different people in the group when we need those specialties.
1: Okay, cool. Um... I guess just kind of talking about numbers and size and that sort of thing. Um, You know, obviously there's, there's different size, you know, sort of law firms working in the space, Um, you know, variety of, of, of different, uh, different companies. Do you think there are maybe too many lawyers working in breach response? You know, because there's a lot of them.
0: I think it's a great question, right? Because I think in terms of cyber and breach response and privacy, This is the only area of law where there's not enough lawyers involved. Um, And I say that because it's a very new area of law. They just recently started teaching this in law school. Um, Mm -hmm. And breach response, if you imagine, has evolved over the past five to seven years, but really has only been around for about 15 years. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about law and legal training, that's a baby. Right, tort law, contract law—that's been around for a long time. So you get a lot of lawyers who do tort law, who are able to do uh, contractual or transactional work, who do litigation, because these are all established areas of law. But in terms of the breach world, there's just not enough of us, um, and we all—you know—I actually went through all the firms. There's about eight firms that really do heavy amount of breach work. And Mm -hmm. I figured out there's only about 150 of us out there. And if you think about that nation, just in the U.S., I S I didn't look on the national side, but if you think about that, 150 lawyers who are able, who are really able to pick up the ball and run with an incident, that's a really small number. Yeah. Um, And it just makes us, it, it overstretches, I think a lot of the firms at times. Um, And then the other problem is we're, we're lacking in new talent coming up. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a big focus, I think, of all the firms to try to get lawyers coming out of school to really kind of get them trained up because that's one of the biggest downfalls I think the industry is having. And I don't think it's alone on the legal side. Yeah. I think when you're looking at, and I mean, you can talk about this side of the IR, right? Yeah. How many people say they do it, but they really don't it's,
1: do it? Yeah, I would say it's exceptionally okay. difficult to find at least, really well-rounded DFIR people, and and so you kind of get pressure on one side, you know, to keep the costs low, and then you got pressure on the other side to kind of spend time develop new people, or you end up with a small number of people, kind of, you know, the the salary skyrocket because there's only a a handful of really really experienced people that kind of keep their skills technical enough. I think that's that's hard as well. Although, I think it's maybe easier what we do versus what you do in the sense that we, I, I think we do, are we're doing a lot of automation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously there's some things on the, on the legal side that you can start to automate, um, you know, and all these, and all this chat GPT, I don't know if we want to talk about that and jump into chat yeah. GPT is, a something to help, you know, m- mitigate the challenges of, of getting talent, um, or, you know, similar LLMs. Um, but for us, at least on the DFIR side, we can kind of focus a lot on automation, which is which is what we do. But it's it's not easy. I think talent is is, is really a stressful problem.
0: I do too. And I mean, I think one of the biggest problems, and it's a kind of a controversial opinion in my mind, and it's also a bias. Of it. I don't think... So where you get a lot of the training and cultivation is through yeah. the relationships with the insurance carriers. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's where you're getting... There's basically two kinds of firms in this. There's the large firms who have the captive groups that do privacy work and some breach work, but they don't work with the middle market, right? The middle market is where the insurance world thrives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you think about it, the large scale companies, they've got insurance, but their retentions, their deductibles are just silly. So they're making their own decisions, but there's not a lot of those breaches. I mean, how many MGMs and Caesar breaches are out there? not many. So the exposure that large law firms are getting to the breach world is small. Now, they do a lot of the privacy work, though, I will say that. Yeah, But then you're looking on the breach side. Why I said there's about 8 firms, 8 or 9 firms that do a heavy amount, because those are the ones that work with the insurance carriers. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest issues that I see in this, and I think it impacts your side too, is... The insurance world comes from the property and casualty world when it comes to defense and when it comes to fees. And in the property casualty world, there's a saturation of one legal and you know kind of the experts they bring in. But on the legal side, there's been a huge race to the bottom in terms of rates, um, in terms of cost cutting. and But they can do that there because once again, huge saturation, right? Supply and demand they're able to cherry pick more people on mm-hmm. this side though, that mentality doesn't translate. Cause once yeah. again, when you're really looking at 150 people, when we have a race to the bottom, mm-hmm. it's cutting talent. And you yeah. know, from the insurance perspective, you, I mean, you were on the insurance side, yeah. but I look at it as when you're cutting rates for us and you all, it's a disservice to the insurance and it doesn't help them on their end product because all you're getting is you're getting more people on a matter and you're getting less efficient people. Um, one of the best part, one of my biggest drivers to insurance carriers, when I'm talking about increasing rates is one, you're going to get more efficiency on our side because you're going to allow more continuity and more retention. Right. And all three of those that means more training, more understanding, um, and better depth in terms of the knowledge. But the lower the rates go, the harder it is to retain talent. And if we lose talent, it's harder to replace that talent. It's not something you just slot in new people. Right. You feel fine with. I and
1: mean, but see, yeah. I think this is the same on our side. I really do. On the it technical is. side.
0: And you're right. And I see it too. It's it's the race. If we play a race to the bottom, yeah. we're looking, and we're not looking, once again, pigs get pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered. I don't think any. You know, I know you aren't. I don't know. I'm. I'm not. We're not looking for on my side. I'm not looking for the big law rates. I'm not yeah. looking for fifteen hundred an hour rates. I get that's mm-hmm. an But yeah. I'm also not going to do the race to the bottom just to increase the workload right. because I know what's going to happen. And one thing I really do try to push to carriers and into the London market is if you give more, a little higher on the rates. One, let's look at the end bill versus. Yeah. Just the rate. Because all we see at the front end is, oh, they have a 15% higher rate. Well, Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you my bill is probably going to be 20% lower than a comparable firm with a lower rate. And I think it's the same on the IR side. But I also think when they, if they kind of embrace this and move away from the property casualty race to the bottom, you're going to see such better results because we're going to have more talent on the IR side, more talent on the legal side. And the results for they are insured. And also, well, let's put the insured aside, just dollars and cents. You're going to mitigate and you're going to reduce your financial exposure, right? Yeah. Because one, you're going to get more talent. If you have more talent, you have more experience, you have more depth, which then leads to lower bills and lower consequences if you have less experienced people working for you. Um, once again, yeah. it's, kind of, it's a controversial opinion. But it's something I, I think the industry really needs it's, to look at and embrace.
1: I'll I'll say, you know, I, I feel like having been on the other side of that, I, I probably overfocused on rates. Um it's it's something that's easy to look at. It's really tangible, right? You can kind of look at and say, well, I'm gonna save us 10% this year by pushing our rates down 10%. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to really spend the time and do the analysis and go, right this law firm is actually 10% more efficient. It's so hard to compare. It's not just a matter of just tracking the data. It's like, well, how complex was that case? Like, yes, you know, or yeah, so you get these kind of weird ones that fly in out of nowhere and they they blow up your costs. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, why did you spend so much on that? And then you have to sort of defend yourself, right? Or like, well, wait a minute. That's because this was weird because of this and this and this. And I to do this extra thing and that extra thing. And so it is really hard to compare off anything other than rates. And and it's a it's a tricky one to solve. I mean, I think if if a firm's in the ballpark, at least they're they're trying, right? Like if they come in, as you mentioned, the big law rates, you're like, no, we know this is not gonna work. No, um, and I don't think yeah.
0: Look, big law, good for them for their rates, right? For them to be able to push yeah. those rates across the finish line. Um I don't think it's effective mm-hmm. in what we need, right? Like one, look, I would love if somebody's paying me fifteen hundred dollars an hour. That would be great. But and the other part of this is this isn't normal day to day, right? Pop, when I was in property and casualty and I was doing trial work for auto tort and premise liability, you know, unless I was in trial, a lot of times my day would end, you know, mm-hmm. at five or six or seven. Yeah, my day does not like clients. Then were not they didn't have like a hot to me. Yeah, clients in this world. And it's something we accept. And I'm not complaining about right, it. But right. they have a hotline to us. They literally, they yeah. need attention from somebody on my team 24-7. And, intent. and so then transitioning that into you play the race to the bottom. People these days, they don't want to be available 24-7, right? Yeah. So it's harder and harder to find those type of crazy people like, uh, like me and people within this, this sphere at these eight firms. Yeah. And I think once again, it's going to go to the quality work that we're bringing. Yeah. Unfortunately, right now, it's just there's too much, you know, it there's, I wish there was a better recognition rather than pushing it onto us and saying, we'll figure it out. um, Recognizing the partnership between legal and the insurance side to
1: get to that better kind of equilibrium. Yeah. Well, what do you think? I don't think I've ever talked with anyone about this, but w- with the adoption, I mean, there at least must be some technology, you know, that can that can make it work better on your end. But it feels like if everything's always hourly rates and nobody's looking at efficiency, it feels like it's hard to invest. I mean, do, do you ever do things like fixed price or do you ever push for other kinds of rates, rate schedules or, you know, is there something innovative that can be done on that side?
0: I think they're I think the fi- we do do fixed fees at times, right? And especially on the front end work, we do a lot of fixed fees to get more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really good conversation to have. But it's also you have to be flexible. You don't yeah. want one side to feel like they're getting put over a barrel and yeah. getting locked into a two or three year contract where you're doing. I'm not gonna throw numbers out there, but a yeah. business can be compromised for X money. I understood. And yeah. Them. But after six months, if I'm kind of losing my shirt, I'm locked yeah. in for another three years. So it, you got to have a trust partnership where you can yeah. go and be like, "Look, we've been doing this, but we're getting killed." Or on the on the other side, you got to be able to trust your partners and yeah. be able to say, from a, like my angle, like we've been watching and we're we're making money hand over foot. So yeah. let's we think we could reduce this for you mm-hmm. and present. Um, but it is a little bit of a lack of trust on that yeah. because we're all feeling like somebody's just trying to cut in angles. Yeah. Uh, I think electronic billing has, uh, you know, those billing softwares that flag words. That was the bane of my existence when I did auto tort defense and that's coming around now. I'm not a fan of that, but I get it and on the yeah. efficiency side, on the insurance side, it makes life a lot easier for you all.
1: How, how mm-hmm. does that work? How does that work exactly? It uh, it's like so in the invoices or
0: yes, so those those flag words like schedule or conversational or, or call or um anything they think should be non available within the algorithm of their and then they cut it and then we have to appeal it and then have to re oh. So now now we're talking about more time Look, and I get it. When when you get a bill, you need to understand what we did. So I, I yeah. completely... But the um, arbitrary flagging of words and then and like, once again, it gets bad at times where you just... And I haven't seen it too bad in this industry, right? But I worry that we're going to shift into that. And then I have to spend yeah. more time trying to justify what I'm doing. Um, yeah. Goes back to the trust. Like, if you can't trust me that I'm actually doing the work that is valuable and efficient, then you shouldn't work with me. But right. we have a general mistrust. And this is yeah. not just in cyber, I think it's across the board. Um, but I think in cyber, there we all have to understand, you're on 24-7 too, so you get it. The adjusters are on 24-7, yeah. right? Somebody's gotta be around to approve a ransom payment, If I gotta get something out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think we all need to kind of understand that this is a different beast in
1: every yeah. aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes sense. Well, so I, I think, I guess back to the, back to the billing software, you got me thinking about that a little bit. I I don't, I, I don't tend to like that sort of thing because I feel like it just makes it um, anything that creates work anywhere in the chain, like extra work, is generally bad and and when I look at things, I just try to think anywhere I can find work to take out work to automate work to not have to do like I think that's the only that's the best answer you know yeah. to, to saving it's it's not making it harder because nothing's free right like if 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 somebody has to go through a lot of work to justify themselves, that comes back in costs to them. so either it makes the situation more acute what we were talking about earlier where you stress to to pay everyone or you stress to keep people at a decent workload because you, you have to make up whatever the costs are, you've got to make up for it. Yeah, right. So yeah. they, you know, and, or if they, if they want to get paid more, you've got to make up for that somehow. It's like, nothing's yeah. free. You got to look at the whole system as a system. Yeah. I think, right? if
0: you're, if I'm getting pulled away because of, I have to appeal a bill. If my accounting calls me and says, yeah. Hey, all this was cut. We need you to go through and appeal it. And then I got to call an associate or paralegal and be like, all right, explain this part to me, explain this part to me. It creates more time. It just then you're right, and then it takes away from our ability to kind of do our job, um, which adds more stress to it. So I think not doing. But once again, I get it. um, If I was an insurer, I would see the the reason behind it because it makes your life, it makes their lives much more efficient Mm -hmm. and gets it off the adjuster's desk so they can focus on their day to day. But there's a there's a happy medium, right between. Mm you know, just cutting to cut and understanding like why we're doing things. And once again, I think this is a unique beast. So I wish the algorithm for that would be a little different and it's not not industry wide and it's not as bad. Like even the ones Mm -hmm. that use it, it's not as bad as what I've seen before. Um, but it's not something I'm a huge fan of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it makes sense. Um, so I think, um, yeah. I guess just in terms of, you know, talent development, it's just an interesting question in general. Like what what kinds of things are you doing to just sort of develop talent? I, I think we do, do think a big
0: focus to? to start on. Well, I think it happens before someone's hired. Um, and it's okay. vetting, right? We go through a pretty heavy vetting process before we hire okay. someone. So even okay. if we're getting overloaded, we don't just staff up the staff up. Um, so, it's first trying to flush out kind of the personality and making sure you're a good kind of cultural fit with us. Okay. Um, and then, when they get in the door, it's one like everybody assigns a mentor. But I think we're pretty good and we're okay. unique that we're we're big enough that we have great resources, but we're small enough that you get that personal feel to it. Um, and so we get a senior associate involved and we get a partner involved, but then it's across the board. So mm-hmm. it's a longer you know, we allow for a shadow. So we usually staff matters with two attorneys. Sometimes we bring in a third, let's say if there's a healthcare issue pops up or there's a government issue. But in general, there's two attorneys. We yeah. bring someone in shadow for a couple months sometimes, uh, especially with brand new attorneys. I think that's one of our big parts about getting that exposure. But, you know, it's us being able to cultivate and really train up someone. Um, and then, you know, Really just having kind of an open door policy about the QA. We have the everybody st- everybody's got standardized training, right? We've got the standardized training. I know all the other law firms do too. So we do all that kind of stuff. We have the written materials, protocols, policies, checklists, forms. Um, but it's more of the the one on one interaction that I think is mm-hmm. really important for our group. Um okay. and especially on the partner level, because we have, I think, seven partners we're all pretty involved with the associates, right? And we're okay. think think 20 associates. So we're all pretty intimately involved in what they're doing and understanding who they are and where their strengths are and where we can kind of help them get better. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's our
1: big focus. Okay. So just kind of providing that senior mentorship and the one-on-one, you know, not just kind of being, dis- disappearing into an office or something like that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. just being available for them. Yeah. It's, um, Training is an interesting problem. It's one that I've been uh, a little bit obsessed over for the same reasons, you know that that I think everyone is. How, how do you bring people on board? How do you find new talent? How can you get people contributing right away, even if they're maybe they've got a lot of the background? But unless you're going for the same usual suspects who kind of been doing the work for X number of years, um, you know you got to be able to figure out how to onboard new types of people, train them up. But
0: also, it goes back to our original conversation about the the drain on talent. Uh It's very, and I think you see this too. The insurance world is unique. It's a unique beast, right? So I've seen lawyers try to like slot in with the insurance world and completely fall on their face because of the lack of understanding between customer and client. Yeah. Uh, Customer being the insurance, right? And it's the tripartite relationship. Meaning we have obligations to both or duty of loyalties to the client, but you have obligations to your customer, your the insurance carrier, because they're footing the bill. Yeah. I think you see this too. When you're working with a non-insured and you have people that come from security, at least from what I've seen, um, the ones that are really good have worked with insurance carriers before and understand that like the pressures that we're under, the obligations that we have, and the obligations that you all have, that we have to mm-hmm. answer to kind of two sides. Um, But when you bring someone brand new into that, they have experience outside of the insurance world. It's hard to break that mold. It's hard to break that mentality to get them. And I think it, look, it's hard. It's it's a tough balance, right? You have to learn Mm -hmm. how to work within the constraints because understandably the insurance side has concerns. They need to, it's their money, right? It's It's their reserves. So you have to respect that. But then you also have to, represent the best interest of your client. And same with you, right? You've got to understand the, the reserves and the interests of an adjuster and what they need to satisfy their job, but also protect the client. And it's hard yeah. from a talent perspective to bring people in. Once again, I keep, I'm a broken record. Mm. Breach world is so unique and it's so yeah. new,
1: right? Ransomware started what three years ago, like true double extortion ransom. Well, like the big, big game ransom. Probably, probably four, I'd say four years 20, ago. 2019. I mean, think about how crazy that is.
0: Mm. So how do you get people that actually... And then so then you have that, but you also have the insurance world. So you have now two unique beasts competing. And ransomware started with just encryption, right? And then it turned into double extortion. Then it turned into triple extortion. Um, But like, my point is when you bring talent in, you can bring fundamental talent, but it's the diverse ones that understand and have operated within this sphere. And we don't, we just don't have the, the deep pool that we can mm-hmm. all pull from. Like yeah. I, I was at a firm once where they told me, well, we'll just go to a legal staffing agency. And I was like, that's not going to work. They're going to have yeah. absolutely no what they're doing. But I, I mean, it's <laughs> the same thing for you. Yeah. So, I mean, you can tell I get fired up about this because it's hard. It's hard to yeah. train talent in this. It's hard to bring in talent. It's hard to train them, and then it's hard to
1: retain yeah. them. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, so, yeah, interesting. I guess um, let me let me let me shift shift off the talent for a bit. Um, you know, kind of just your perspective on things is very much you know the claims response side. You know, doing a lot of breach work, interacting with a lot of claims professionals. What would you say to the insurers that would uh, that would make their lives easier? What do you think would make their lives easier?
0: So it's easier said than done, right? And as you just said, I'm on one side. And so I don't, I have no, I'm not an actuary. I don't understand the underwriting world at all. But I think one of the biggest headaches I know that is they're having is this shifting market, right? We go from hard to soft, soft to hard, hard to soft, soft to medium, like whatever it is. And that the changing of the requirements and the standards you know, I remember what five years ago when the questionnaire was like five questions. Um, yeah, really lack of heading.
1: Oh, it was horrible. Yeah, um, and then well, it's good if you're buying though, and you don't want to spend oh, time, and you're a small business. You're like, yeah. oh, it's yo, know, it was lovely for that. But
0: I think the the problem is, especially in the insurer world, you're getting people when you don't have a hard. I don't want to call it a hard market. I think it, the it was a it's a market adjustment to get back to where we should be. Cyber risk is. Much more. Um, I mean, look at the lawsuits, right? Yeah. These claims are huge. The right. risk is huge. So, what I would say is, we need to pick something. We need to pick something and stick on it for a couple of years mm. to really establish a floor and get that objective data. Because I think in the past three or four years, we're moving too much between hard and soft markets. And I yeah. think then the risk is shifting. So, just what I see on my desk, when it was the hard market after about eight months, I was seeing insurers come through the door that were much better prepared for these incidents, had much yeah. better security controls in place, had policies, procedures, and protocols, actually knew what an incident response plan was. Um, and then from there, the harm to an adjuster or to the insurer was greatly reduced the financial costs. Um, I mean, baseline minimum, right? We know that an average breach worldwide costs 4.2 million, I think. Companies with a plan, team, and tested save 2.6 million. You can actually see that happening. And I mean, once again, you're in the trenches with me. You see it as well. You can see people are better. And when Mm -hmm. we got more intensive in our applications and you got more intensive in the questions we're asking, the requirements that then flowed down to a broker and then the broker to the insured, what I saw was... Better, more protected insurance, and then one hundred percent agree. Conversely, I'm a huge. I think the insurance market will can drive securities. Yeah. The government cannot. Like people don't trust the government. The government's also always behind the eight ball, and they don't. They don't have a true vested interest in this. When you have a financial stake, that's a vested. That's a huge vested interest. So when I saw the soft market, right? So. Yeah. The soft market now from like last year when it got softer until now. And also, well, before it was a hard market. Before it was a hard market, it was hard. I mean, yeah, it was the things that would end up on my desk would be like no MFA, no air gap backups, no understanding yeah. of the inventory, no due diligence of vendors, no plans. Mm-hmm. Just, you know.
1: Yeah. Like they, they, they their, their defense was we didn't think we were going to get hit. Uh,
0: And it was like, and the cost,
1: we were a target. Yeah. yeah.
0: And the costs were substantial. And the problem now is if it shifts to a soft market, we're going to see, I'm telling you in the next two to three years, the regulatory environments, you can already start see the shift with the SEC, SEC going after solar winds and the CISO you're seeing New York come down on people. You're seeing OCR shifting their positions. You're seeing different state AGs. I was on a panel with an AG at Net Diligence talking about their consent decrees and how they're coming out harder. If we don't get insured in a better position, then the headaches for the insurers is going to be catastrophic in my mind. I think the losses that they're going to experience based on privacy litigation and based on breach litigation, both regulatory and civil, uh-huh. is going... It is going to be astronomical. And we're only looking, and that's beyond the initial costs for the legal, the friends, the data, you know, the notifications. That's not yeah. even taken into account. And I worry yeah. that that's the only data point we're really looking at rather mm-hmm. than foreshadowing based off the laws that we now have in place. So I think that would make their lives much easier too, because you're going to get a better standard mm-hmm. of you're going to get a more uniform standard for their insurers that are walking through the door. I think a couple of insurers are doing really well about that. And I think I've seen that. On I'm not going to name names, but there's a couple out there that have done real well holding the line Mm. and reducing the risk. But if we can almost get one standard across the board, it's going to reduce and mitigate the problems that they're going to face. And it's also going to, a lot of times, you're going to get into coverage disputes, which I think make their lives harder. And so it helps kind of brokers understand
1: what is needed, but it's a change. Yeah. Of it. e- even though, even if you did get into coverage disputes, I think having that push on the underwriting side is what, what can make such a huge difference. So, yeah, I mean, I, I in general, I tend to be permissive on what things should be paid. Like I, I tend to think things should be paid if it's a legitimate cyber incident, even if there was, you know, things go wrong, you miss things, people make mistakes, like, as long as it wasn't clearly dramatically different than what you put on your application, you know, um, You would make a great coverage attorney. (laughs) You'd make a (laughs) great coverage attorney. You sound
0: like every coverage attorney that I've talked to on the insurer, in the uh, the insured side. On the insured side. Not clear misrepresentation, not known misrepresentation. Not clear prejudice. That's why I like I don't I don't get into coverage.
1: So but even even having that stuff brought up um in the beginning, like, no, listen, you need we're not gonna write this, you know, we're not gonna write this for you unless you engage with our risk management, unless you you've got these things. We know these make a big difference. I think it's really underestimated how people don't really understand, even after all these years, don't really understand that there's a small number of things that are super important to do. And those are the things the insurers are asking for. There's mm-hmm. tons of things in cybersecurity to do, and it's an overwhelming amount of stuff you can do all across your network. But if you just go, right, I'm going to start with these you know, core things, and then we'll build out from there. And if the insurers push really, really hard on the small number of core things, I think just globally, it makes a huge difference for everyone. So I'm I'm a big fan of pushing it up front.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, right. I think the insurance world is a huge driver for change because we all want to, as a person, as a, you know, you're a business owner. You want to be protected. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. get protected, the government is there to protect people, but they do that with what? The, they don't have a carrot. They just have a stick. Their stick is create a law, deter, punch. Punish the Turk, whatever it is. Insurance, though, gives you that carrot. But with yeah. the, the stick is, if you don't do it, you're not getting covered. The carrot is, if you follow what you said and you follow what we're saying, we're yeah. going to give you financial support. So mm-hmm. I'm a huge proponent of the insurance world, you know, of their ability to change the culture. But it's they face their own race to the bottom. Yeah. And in general, when you have a race to the bottom, your quality is going to slip. It's going to start diluting the market, um, and we're going to see heavier losses. And I think, I think some insurers could face existential problems. Yeah. I'm telling you with these with these lawsuits, with bad? these privacy lawsuits, and these class action data breach class actions. It's just it's a ripe environment. Yeah, for these targets.
1: Cause it's going to happen and you're not going to see it. It's kind of long, long tail type stuff, you know, three years it's later. You're, yeah. Yeah. But that's um, why, I mean, I,
0: I talked to a group of underwriters, um, a little while ago. And I said, I don't know how they sleep at night
1: because <laughs> insurance. Stressful. Yeah.
0: I don't because i mean from like,
1: your side. It's stressful though, because you oh, I see sleep. the incidents all day. Right. That's why they always oh, yeah. say, well, going from to underwriting sleep, so though. hard.
0: Exactly. Because like, how do you quantify in the insurance world? It's about quantifying risk, right? It's about understanding risk to understand the financial perspective. How do you quantify a risk that changes day by day? Yeah. Like, How do you, and how do you underwrite that? So I think the only way to underwrite that is to set almost a higher standard. Yeah. And then work from there, right? Rather than a lower standard to get business in the door, Let's set that higher standard. Let's raise that more, mm. even if it's a more money, right? Or even if you're, look, it's not my money. It's not me losing business, so I get it. Um, but yeah. once again, like we don't, as a firm, we don't play the race to the bottom, and so I think we've lost relationships because of that. But I think it's made us better at our jobs, and I think that can be said for the IR world. I think that can be mm-hmm. now said too with underwriting standards. So yeah, it's outside my lane, so.
1: Yeah. So. Um... Kind of along the lines of you know you see these shifting trends. I guess what would you say the trends have been that people have been slow to slow to respond to? Uh, so I've been screaming about this almost since I started.
0: Is to start third party risk yeah. vendors, service providers, and now it's fourth party risk. I thought Move it was going to be a huge wake up call. Granted, you can't prevent a Move it type incident, a caseya type incident. You can't yeah. prevent but it's the smaller vendors that you can prevent. So what I've told clients for years is we used to be a very centralized society. Now, centralized is slow and clunked though, right? But centralized yeah. is more secure. Our castle had one door, one yeah. bridge across the moat. But then when technology improved, we decentralized. We took the back office and we pushed it all out. HR got pushed out, payroll got pushed out, security got pushed out. I mean, everything, right? Processing, I manufacturing, everything. But the problem is at that point, our castle went from having one bridge over a moat to a hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you defend a hundred bridges at this point? Yeah. The best way to do it is to understand the risks external. It's hard enough for a company to understand their own risks internally, right? Between the technical... Administrative and technical safeguards. That's what yeah. we always talk about. Administrative, wow. physical, technical. Put physical aside, because truthfully, I, I that's if you don't have physical safeguards, then I I can't help you. <laughs> um you just can't. If you don't lock your doors, you don't uh, then it's hard to help you. But on the administrative and technical side, it's hard enough to get a client and a customer and an insured to understand their internal protocols, yeah. Internal safeguards. But now we're trying to tell them about, hey, you work with 100 vendors, 100 service yeah. providers, half of which have access into your system, half of which have your client information, your employee information. What questions have you asked these people? Um, M&A transactions. I do a lot of this M&A stuff now, and I love it on the cyber and privacy side, because yeah. I get to do those deep dives into people. I get to ask these questions and evaluate those risks. We're not doing that as an industry. Here. We're not doing that as a society. And that's creating an immense amount of problems. Uh, I mean, move it, prime example of fourth party risk of the downstream impact. Now, once again, you can't prevent downstream, you can't prevent a movement, but you can mitigate because you can start asking more questions about who a vendor is working with. Right. Mm-hmm. So at baseline, what are we doing with vendors? Are we asking, them, let's go with administrative. They have an incident response plan. Do what's their data retention? Huge. Like, how long do they keep that my data for? How are they disposing of it? How are they protecting it? Um, are we allowed to do some audits? What's their cyber insurance for third party for third party risk? Right? If they have something that impacts me, are they going to be able to cover me? Where am I in that? Are they completely yeah. exposed? Big question. Now we need to ask is who are they working with? And what security are you taking? Are they taking for them? What questions are they asking on the technical side? It's, do they have MFA? Do they have air get backups? Do they have a patching policy? Do they have a SIM? All of these kind of basic things that you and I push for a client to do themselves. We really need to hammer them to do for vendors. And mm-hmm. once again, I think in the insurance world, they can start pushing this. Um, I was talking to a, an insurer or a syndicate out of Lloyds a couple years ago, and they were ahead of this game, thinking about how to create a vendor program for to better understand an insured uh, vendors and almost a tiered pro tiered system for it. Problem oh, was for that. it was it's hard to figure out how to continuously update that. but and I don't really know a good answer for an insured side we have to figure out a way where an insurer can force a client to really understand their vulnerabilities for vendors. Because I have a feeling that's going to just keep getting worse and worse. So I think that's something we're really slow on.
1: I mean, I think maybe companies have some understanding of maybe direct dependencies that are like really obvious from a technical perspective, like they're using... Microsoft email system so they know if they have a dependency on that or whatever. But I think it's always been hard on the data side. I like GDPR kind of forcing people to kind of map out data and think about where their data is and 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 think about, you know, all that sort of maybe breach side of things rather than just the uh the direct technical dependency. But then I guess there's other things too. I don't know. I think it's it's hard to solve and I'm certain people aren't thinking about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, we already have to, con- like, the problems we already have to confront on day-to-day mm. based on internal security and internal policies yeah. is hard enough. But right. now we're talking about a whole new level, whole new layer mm-hmm. of due diligence. And, yeah. you know, when I'm working with clients, when I present them their risks, you know, it's they just look at me like a deer in a headlights. And yeah. I have to start by piecemealing it. Well, the problem is, like, when we piecemeal... Sometimes the vendors get pushed to the back of the line because the vendor due diligence, it's a big task, but when Mm -hmm. you do it once, then at that point, you're in a better position. Then it's just updating and evaluating and Mm reevaluating to make sure that it's continued for your vendor because the security standard is changing.
1: Right. Um, That makes sense. So I guess kind of, just in terms of, um, changing direction again, sorry, I'm thinking, um, kind of issues. So we talked about talent, um, you know, and, and, and kind of issues that creates, you know, kind of for your team and, and how that's a a big issue for you. Um, what are the kinds of big internal issues do you deal with day to day? Like what are sort of the, the team challenges that you deal with internally? I think
0: one of the bigger problems is one, and this is more external, but in fact internal. There's no overarching federal law mm. that's gonna bleed down, right? So then in, in terms of the US, I think okay, the international yeah. community um, is a bit ahead of us on that, right? With the GDPR, even right. China, India. Um, they've got they have more national ones, but the US is unique. We've always been unique. We're little FIFAs, yeah. right? Every state right. needs to do their own thing. The problem on the legal side is it changes per state, taking up the highly regulated ones. And so just on an internal level, trying to keep up with the state law shifts, like Nevada just changed. If I told you every law right now, in six months, we would have to then come back and change the laws again. So Nevada just changed. Mm -hmm. Florida is changing in a couple months. Uh, Maryland updated theirs. So that's a big problem, trying to keep up with that um, and stay ahead of it. All right, to Keep clients and insurers informed. I think the other problem is when you don't have um, specialties. right? I think mm-hmm. we're, we're in a great position because we have people who specialize in DOD contracting, education, healthcare. I think a lot of the other firms too do this. Um, but it's making sure that you're staffed up for that, right? Yeah. And because when we get a DOD contracting in, we got 2 or 3 people who are great. But sometimes, you know, I suspect other firms probably maybe don't have that. Um, And it took us a while. It took us a little bit to really get... We've had one for a while, but it took us a little bit to get 2 others trained up for that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so maintaining that and ensuring they have the resources to keep their education up, right? And finding time, carving out time. Um, like I like the insurance data, data security laws, but it's finding time to keep myself educated. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the other challenge, I think that we all face is work-life balance
1: in mm-hmm. this,
0: in, in this industry of the 24 seven requirement. Yeah. Um, and I think but like, that's not unique to us. I think, That's not unique to cyber, um, in terms of what's like balance. But I I think having, uh, to be on a lot. And I think the last part is the, you know, it's an emotionally charged environment. I'm not, Mm -hmm. once again, I'm not dealing with contractual negotiations. I'm dealing with somebody whose business might about to be bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, And so I do believe that you have to be able to weather the emotional challenges, um, once again, I don't think that's just us internally as McDonald Hopkins. Yeah. I think we will be every other firm too, but it's something that's underestimated in this. Um, it's it's like litigation. It's like trial, uh, but it's constant trial work. And it's with people whose lives are really being impacted. Um, and then finally, I, I think the regulatory, I, I'm. I guess I'm speaking more, in general, rather than just what we experience, Cause I think what we experience, others are, I think everything I just listed, everybody else is experiencing the same problems, the same in general yeah. mm-hmm. um,
1: Cause I, you're I think reacting that, to kind of this broader environment and it's creating yeah. the same issues for everyone. Yeah.
0: Being able to give clients objective answers, like mm-hmm. is the, one of the more frustrating parts of my life. I'm used to having case law, well-established statutory rules or administrative rules where I can go point to it and say, this Mm. is what this word means. And here's 15 cases. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I can't do that. So every time I talk to a woman, I'm like, well, I don't know. We might be on the forefront of making a case. Yeah.
1: it's, It's funny you say that. It's just, it reminds me of when I was going through, a few years ago, trying to figure out all the different breach laws in the U.S. And I created like a little spreadsheet. And I was like, OK, here's how they all work. And then and then you're looking at these statues and you're like, well, what, the, what does that mean, actually? What and you're trying to mean? look it up. Like, what's that word mean? You what know. does access? What is
0: having a card data that allows card or account number that allows access to an account really mean? Yeah. Does that mean like I can do an ACH payment? Or does that mean I can dip into your account and pull money? Like, what were they yeah. trying to say here? Right. Right. And like, what time does the, what, when do the clocks start? Yeah. Nobody defines this. Like, they're like 30 days yeah. from the date of discovery. Okay. What's when's the date of discovery? discovery? What's that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, somebody sit down from a regulatory sort of perspective and tell me exactly what that means. You're going to tell me it's the date of encryption. How do I know what's yeah. impacted? Okay. You're going to tell yeah. me it's the date forensics is done. How do I don't know what's impacted? So,
2: Mm-hmm.
0: it's a and that makes clients very frustrated and i get it i understand that because they want to understand their risk and mm-hmm. it's hard for me from a legal perspective to present them i mean i present them the analysis the risk analysis yeah but yeah. i can't give them an objective uh, look unless it comes out black or white of like breach or no breach right it's hard it's really hard to see especially from the class mm-hmm. action side too because that's shifting
1: under our feet. yeah yeah that's uh yeah, no, but it, I, I guess that's what kind of makes it fun. But it's definitely a challenge—the the lack of standardization, the lack of being able to just, you know, lay lay a lot of things. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess we'll we'll move on from that, um, just in the interest of time. But it's an interesting topic. Um, so I guess um, kind of uh, talked a bit about you know complications. What could you do? I think you know we sort of talked through that. Um, terms of your, I, I, I like to ask people this question too, is, is just sort of around measurement. Like how do you measure what you do? Like what's most important to you?
0: For me, it's a, it's going to be a subjective standard to start, right? It's client response. Okay. Right? Are they giving, are they happy at the end of the day? I mean, I think clients are pretty right. easy. They'll tell you if they're not happy in these situations. Yeah. We'll make it pretty clear.
1: Especially um, in the stressful situations, right? Like they don't let they you know right be away. clear. They'll be unfiltered. Um, uh,
0: another standard I try to use on an objective side is, are they going to continue to work with me after an incident? Yeah. Uh, we all get caught up with trying to get more of these breaches through the door and then moving on. You know, one of my big things is trying to keep clients, mm. you know, to help them stay secure, to kind of incorporate. Right. Um, I think another objective standard we look at is internal numbers to see how we are. Like, I don't know how much another firm is billing, right? Mm-hmm. But I can tell you just looking at our numbers that I feel good, that I think we feel good about the objective stance in terms of what's being spent versus what you're getting. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, I'm, those would be the three big... Oh, and if a client is sending good feedback to adjusters. I mean, that's an easy way for me to objective to give an objective. Like we did well on this, you know? Yeah. Of, so yeah, I, I would say those are the three big ones. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, that it's hard to get really objective on, well, this, it took me this long to, yeah. you know, I guess from your side, I could see it being like, well, how long did it take us to, uh, Contain. How long did it take us to do forensics? How long did it take for the data mining? So then you can kind of add that up, right?
1: Yeah, everything's unique. Every situation is different. Yeah, I, I would say for us, it's it's more about um, you know how did we track against what we said, like in terms of how much time it took, um, in terms of amount of time we spent on it. Like mm-hmm. if we if if we took more time or less time, like why did we have a good reason? Oh, well these logs weren't available, so it was less times less time or it's like, oh, you know, we were asked to do these additional servers. So it was more time. So you kind of you're trying to see if you're accurate in terms of your estimates. I think that's probably an important one in terms of doing the, the technical side, um, but also the timelines like, OK, we told them we that they'd have a report in X number of days. Mm-hmm. Do they have that report in X number of days? Are we late? Um, I think those are those are the kinds of metrics in terms of what we deliver are pretty easy. I think the other ones are, are tricky because, like you said, they, they do change a lot. Um, so it's, um, I wouldn't say I'm certainly, we track all of it, but I'm not certain. I look at it. I, I look at, are we, are we consistent? Are we delivering? Are people happy? Like a big one for me is, is, um, has anyone complained? Does anybody seem unhappy? Is there any either, yeah. either from the, you know, the breach coach, the, the insured or, or the insurer? As long as everybody's happy, that's usually a good sign. Yeah. Um, like no noise is usually good. is a good thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think, um, you know, and obviously I do catch up with people and I talk to them about their experience working with us and things like that. It would be ideal if, if um, the more you could do that would be nice, but in a sense, then people kind of get annoyed, like you over survey them, you know, so I think it's it's kind of, I think we're, we're, it's super it's just like cross my fingers when i say it but i really hope we're attuned to kind of what clients look, want obviously partners. obviously we care we care about it let's put it that way i
0: think you all do a really good job of not oversaturating um yeah. with those questions but also being open to the feedback and mm-hmm. engaging when you need to engage on that so i think yeah. you and your team do a good job about that
1: yeah it's uh it's appreciated it's definitely important to us Um, So I guess just in terms of of current events, things in the news, what do you uh, you think is really interesting going on right now in cyber?
0: Well, the nerd part of me is the privacy lawsuits with the VPPA, Video Video Protection Privacy Act. Yeah. uh, Wiretap statutes. I mean, this started like a year ago about. But the way plaintiff attorneys are taking old laws and doing all these new theories and privacy... which is infuriating on the defense side, and I'm sure on the insurance side. But I'll give them credit. It's very... It's pretty ingenious about how they're using these... A law that was created based on video rental history to now say people are capturing your video viewing on the website. That's that's very... It's a smart... It's a very interesting theory. I give them that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think biometric lawsuits coming out, uh, I forgot the the net, the one, the trial was recently. It was like $226 million for a biometric in Illinois. I mean, it got sent back down. They're negotiating some extent. Yeah. just are absurd. But I think those are the privacy lawsuits
1: are going to be crazy moving forward, especially with all it these It sends things. a message. It certainly sends a message. You know, pay attention to what you're doing with people's data.
0: And. And that's what I had the conversation a little while ago with um, a group of underwriters and adjusters saying, when you're talking to clients, we need to have more frank conversations about what data are you taking in and why? Like, why are you clicking this? It's like, oh, this this looks really cool. Like Metapixel. I get to see who's clicking on my website. Yeah. One, why do you care? Second, if you do care and it is analytics and it's going to help you, that's fine. Make sure you're being transparent. It's not difficult. Give people the option. The baseline of this, right, is beyond the validity of these lawsuits, right? And mm-hmm. my opinion, personal opinion, that I think it's that's a bunch of crap. The baseline of the law makes sense. Yeah. I should have the ability to control my information and what you do with my information. You should yeah. have the responsibility. You as a company should have a responsibility to tell me what you're doing with my information. It's yeah. my information, right? I'll share it with you. That's fine. But... You better be transparent about it just because that's Mm -hmm. common sense, right? That's very much, it's not hard to do either, but companies don't, we don't, it's backburned. This is all. And we all neglect that Mm -hmm. eight to 10 years ago, information became currency information became very valuable in the criminal world and in the corporate world. And it's being utilized against people. So Mm -hmm. We now need to be really cognizant of that and take those steps. And unfortunately, look, the penalties behind these laws, I think I have a very strong opinion about that. Yeah. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it helps people that are hurt. Right. Um, but the baseline of the laws makes sense to me. They do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that's it in terms of, in terms of thought leadership questions. It's been, uh, been an interesting chat. I'd I'd like to, before we go, you know, get a little bit more insight into your background and some of your thoughts. Um, How did you originally get into the insurance industry or the... Either one or or get into law in the first place?
0: So I always wanted... I always wanted to be a lawyer. I've always wanted to be a trial attorney. Um, I always wanted to try cases. And so I started when I came out of law school. Initially, I wanted to be a prosecutor. I couldn't get a prosecutor role. So I was told if you want to try cases, then you've got to be a prosecutor, public defender, personal injury attorney, or an insurance defense attorney. Um, I was lucky enough to land a job with state farm staff counsel, which gave me two uh, inside like knowledge and experience. One, it gave me a lot of trial experience, which is a lot of fun. You know, I tried like 350 bench trials, 50 jury trials, great mentorship, um, wonderful five years. But I also started learning about the insurance industry. I started learning about the amount of opportunities that a lawyer side I had in that industry. And it gave Mm -hmm. me really good insight into the tripartite relationship, which we were talking about earlier, right? And how to operate within this sphere and on this board. Um, And then I shifted into the cyber world a couple years into my career because I saw an opportunity in privacy and cyber. I saw a need for attorneys in this. Um, and then about five years in, I jumped off from State Farm to a smaller firm in Baltimore to launch uh, a cyber practice and my cyber career and progress from there. Okay.
1: Um, well, cool. Well, interesting. Um, what would you recommend to someone who wanted to have a successful career in either insurance or law?
0: I would say you have to humble yourself. And understand that there are OGs in these, you know, I guess OGs, old gangsters or old uh, people who've been doing this for a while, right? Yeah, Um, Industry, real thought leaders that you need to go target and get to know and understand. Um, I think you and I spoke early in my career, right? And I talked to a couple Mm -hmm. other people early and when I was coming out to understand, you need to get before you really jump into this, you need to understand let's just go cyber and privacy to start. Yeah. Okay. You need to understand the beast. This is a beast. So one, you got to understand the obligations you're about to step into. And this can be applied anywhere. If you go to a big law, you better understand you work 24 seven and you work under the gun. You come into the breach world, you know, it's very, it's different obligations. You're not 24 seven, but it's more of a high pace environment versus contract. So you got to understand that. Second, you got to understand the landscape. What I would suggest to anybody that wants to come into cyber and privacy to start understand the different parties. Um, you want to get experience, you need to go work for one of these eight firms. Um, yeah. and I think they're all great firms. And it's one, it's understanding the legal side, but it's understanding the insurance side, it's understanding the IR side fundamentals. Not you don't mm-hmm. have to be understanding the process like data mining. Nobody talks. Nobody taught me about data mining until I started doing this. And right? until yeah. one of the insurers was like, well, who do you want to use for data mining? And I was like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah. So it's you have to educate. But to yeah. do that, find people in this industry that are willing to talk to you, right? And yeah. to willing to... And when I came out, I buzzed a lot of people and I found a lot of good mentors who are willing to talk because it's a small community. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, getting into law, it's understanding you can shift jobs. You're not going to be... You don't have to stay at the same firm forever. Right. You'll find like I, I feel very happy. The prior firms I were at were great. Don't get me wrong. But with McDonald, it's a very it's a different feel, and they're so dedicated, our group, to the cyber and privacy. Um, but you know, it took me a couple firm iterations to get here. Yeah. And so understand you're not you're not pigeonholed. And I shifted my career a couple years in, right? right. I was doing all auto tort defense and premise liability defense, not cyber. Mm-hmm. So Understanding you can shift, but you might have to take a couple steps back. Yeah. Once again, humble yourself to understand that you take a couple steps back, start lowering the totem pole, but then build your way back up.
1: That's a a great point. Kind of you're shifting from one to the other. You know, you you might have to drop back a bit, you kind of build up some skills, but you move up really quickly because you've just taken a temporary step back because you have some kind of gaps that you need to deal with before you can really do the role that you wanna do.
0: And then if you're passionate and you like it, you might take right one step back, but then the five step forward, Mm -hmm. you use what you already have as your tool, right? You're not just one year out of school or five months of school, you're a couple years out. So you take all those life skills, you take one step back, but then you get passionate and dedicated and then you jump five steps forward. So not being scared to take that
1: risk. Yeah. Yeah, no, that uh, that makes sense. Well, um, we've uh, we've definitely run out of time, um, but it's been uh, a, a pleasure having you on and chatting with you about these topics. So thanks thanks a lot for uh, coming.
0: Thank you so much, Anthony. I really appreciate you having me.
1: If you want to learn more about our
0: host, Anthony, or his company, Asarius, visit aseris.com. A-S-C-E-R-I-S dot com. Thanks to our friends at Savu for producing this episode with us.
2: See you next time.